When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good morning, everybody. Thank you guys for joining us. Wrestle Kingdom 14 just ended. This is our Wrestle Kingdom 14 post-game show. Um, and as I'm going to call it today, it is Breakfast with Wrestling Inc. I am your host for today, Michael Wiseman, joined by our resident New Japan pro wrestling expert, Jesse Collins. Jesse, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. I was tired, but um, it was definitely a great weekend of shows. Um, Really interesting. A lot of stuff happened. I'm excited to talk about it today. This morning, tonight, wherever you are. <laughs> There's just like this weird, like, I have no idea what time it is right now and kind of what's going on. And, it um, is It is a, a bit of an adventure, and it really makes you appreciate the, uh, you know, European fans and fans in the UK. Because when they want to watch shows in America, which all WWE shows or most other major promotions, it's on in the middle of the night for them all the time. A- so I feel I definitely sympathize with them. It's fun to do maybe once a year or in this case twice a year, but any other time a year, I don't think I'd be up to do it. Yeah, that's a really great point because I think we take for granted here stateside. WWE is the prominent, other than maybe New Japan Pro Wrestling, right? Is the Mm -hmm. premier pro wrestling organization in the entire world. And we get the luxury of watching it on a Saturday night or a Sunday night and and not having to stay up late like we do tonight. Um, And this puts it into focus that, yeah, guys... um, this being up in the middle of the night to watch wrestling takes a lot of dedication. So if you get up in the middle of the night for WWE pay-per-views, uh, number one, I'm impressed. Number two, don't do, <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> what was your, like, how did you get ready to do this? Right. Cause this was two days. If you're just joining us, uh, hopefully you watched wrestle kingdom 14. Let me put this out there right now. Hopefully you watched it. Cause we're going to get into all the match details, um, everything we can cram into the next hour. There will be spoilers for everything. So if you've not watched it yet, please go watch it. If you have watched it and you happen to be up with us watching live, we do have a live chat going on YouTube right now. You can check that out on the wrestling YouTube page where um, we're going to have live chat going throughout the next hour. Um, but if you are doing breakfast with us and you stayed up late, Jesse, I got to ask you, how did you prepare for these two days of staying up late? Or um, getting up early, depending, because you're, you're East yeah. Coast too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a natural night owl. So uh, staying up that late, staying up, I don't usually stay up till like 8 a.m. But so it's, but it's not that, it wasn't that challenging for me last night, especially uh, because I didn't have anything to do Saturday. So. Sure. Uh, it wasn't that big of a deal. A uh, Sunday I have, or I guess today I have like bigger plans. I've got to, I'm going out around midday. So, uh, <laughs> that's going to be a little bit more challenging right now. I'm doing fine. Ask me Sunday night, ask me Monday when I'm supposed to be at work and I'm probably asleep at my desk. That will be a bigger right. challenge, but, uh, I famously don't drink coffee or tea and don't have any caffeine in my system. And I regretting that life choice at this point, but we'll see how it goes. That is very impressive. Um, I just showed up. John P says, I feel like a zombie. And John P, I 100% agree. I cheated yesterday. I watched day one Saturday afternoon or Saturday morning-ish, afternoon-ish once I got up because we weren't doing this show until after today. Mm-hmm. But I, um, you know, we're on the East Coast here. This show started at midnight. Um, the pre-show did. The broadcast started at one for the proper card. And um, yeah, so I tried to go to sleep at like eight and get a few hours of sleep before we did this and i'm going to try to get some sleep afterwards but i am uh, i'm not a night owl like you i am a 
I like my typical go to bed at 11, get up at seven kind of routine for mm -hmm. sleep. So this has been a challenge for me. I do have my coffee. Luckily, luckily this card was incredible from top to bottom and um, so many things to get into in the next hour. We're going to get into every match a little bit, um, some matches more than others, but a ton of big, huge matches with big, huge implications. But the first thing that sticks out to me, Jesse, is these these cards, these cards emanating from Japan. Uh, we both watch You watch it on Fight as well, right? Oh, no, I watched it on New Japan World. You watched it on New Japan. Okay, yeah. so how was your experience with New Japan World and the stream situation tonight? Um, so on night one, it was fine. On uh, night two, it was a tiny bit choppy, and they even had a little notice up on my screen saying, due to demand or due to uh, traffic, they were experiencing some delays. I didn't really experience any like buffering issues, but there were some times where the video quality went down and it was um, very, uh, it was a good experience. I mean, it was about what I normally see on new Japan world. Um, I don't know. How was your experience on fight? Fight was great. And fight, yeah. I got to give fight some props here. They hooked us up with some codes. We got to give out to some people uh, that, that follow us on wrestling Inc on Twitter and such. So uh, really appreciate their support here. So I did watch it on fight. I've watched it on new Japan in the past. I like fight because it's a little bit easier to get into the app on Roku mm -hmm. or whatever. And honestly, both days, uh, my stream was really solid. There's a couple of audio dropouts. I think that was the result of stuff happening in the Tokyo Dome. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But um, I did not have any of the streaming issues that um, I think people watching a new Japan world maybe had this morning. Some people said it dropped out for the first part of the card, things like that. So did not experience any of that, but it is a very different kind of broadcast. Like if you are a new pro wrestling fan getting into uh, new Japan pro wrestling, I should say, um, it's a very, I would call it almost a Spartan kind of broadcast, right? That doesn't have all the razzmatazz that a WWE show has. Everything's still in Japanese. Um, I got to give props here. I think the commentary team for New Japan is fantastic. Kevin Kelly does a bang-up job. Yes, Kevin Kelly, if, you're, if you don't know, the guy from WWE 20 years ago, right, works for New Japan, does an amazing job. Um, of course, he had Gino with him there. Rocky Romero joined them for parts of the show. And I thought the commentary team helped make this a very... Uh, approachable show for a Western audience. The commentary team in New Japan is, and tonight, in the last two nights, was great. I really can't overstate how important they are to the overall show of the product. When I first started watching New Japan, they didn't have the English commentary. Yeah. It was only in Japanese. And I actually grew to like it, even though I didn't really understand what they're saying, but they were really over the top with their enthusiasm. So it was kind of fun to watch. And I said, when they added the English commentary, I was like, I'm not going to watch that. I like the Japanese commentary, right? That kind of hardcore idea. <laughs> but slowly I started. You're the thing. guy that like, you, you don't want to, you don't watch with a uh, dub. You never watch anything dubbed, right? You're the subtitle <laughs> dude. Yeah. I mean, but the, I, so I never wanted to watch the English commentary and then I, I slowly started to get into it. And then I realized, and I was like, damn, these guys are really good. And they helped so much with this broadcast. I mean, we could talk about it uh, at other times. I thought one of the, the best things was in the Will Ospreay, uh, Hiromo Takahashi match. Very early in the match, they mentioned, oh, you know, Hiromo's talked about how he's working on something new, which it would be, he has a different finisher than uh, the time bomb. Right. And then you, they said that just kind of casually, like, oh, he mentioned he's working on something. When he was out, he was working on something new. So then when he hit the time bomb and Osprey kicked out, you're like, oh, he's got some other crazy finisher he's going to do, which ended up being that Emerald Flosion cradle kind of driver where he basically just dropped Osprey on his head. And I was like, oh, that was what it was. And it was just like that kind of little stuff. And there was so many different things. And uh, Michael, that was a four man booth that you had uh, Kevin Kelly, um, you had Gino. You had Rocky Romero, and then you had Chris Charlton, who comes in with the translations and does the 
a few history pieces here and there. And yes. that is really difficult. A four-person booth, we complain on WWE when they have a three-person booth and AEW to a degree too. They, sometimes it doesn't always work with three people. It's too many people. This was four and it worked pretty flawlessly. I think you got to give a lot of credit to Kevin Kelly for being kind of the point man and making sure everyone was involved and, and kind of being the main guy to set up everyone. It was very impressive with the commentary. I think it helps a lot for people who don't know that much about the product, but also for someone like myself who follows it pretty closely, it, it still adds so much. It's not just for beginners. It's, it's like, They do a really good job. It's very underrated. Absolutely. And, and I've always said, I mean, a couple of years ago, or last year they were showing it on Access TV and you had Jim Ross in the booth. And I said, don't watch that version. Watch the new, this was before fight, watch the new Japan world version mm-hmm. because you got Kevin Kelly. And again, I think he does this great job. You mentioned the entire team. They all do a great job, but Kevin Kelly, especially telling that story for a Western audience. He's so good at it. So adept at it. Um, and, and just the little things like you mentioned, I mean, constantly giving us stats throughout the night. So-and-so won this many matches last year. So-and-so hasn't won any match in the Tokyo Dome in this long, how many victories they've had. And, and, AEW does this with their win and loss record, but the way they can fade it at the beginning of matches and tie it into the story, uh, all the props in the world to that Wrestle Kingdom 14 American commentary team. Mm-hmm. It feels like you're watching a regular, like a real sport. It does because Absolutely. they have data, like the way they would talk about, you know, rushing yards or something like that in football. They would talk about, you know, or you know, turnover differential or something like that. It goes along with the whole idea that with new Japan and, and Japanese wrestling in general is presented more as a realistic sport, as opposed to the kind of more entertainment that we get in America. And I think that goes back to the commentary as well. 100%. And th- to your point, the stats they use are relevant to either that unique wrestler or kind of what story they have going on. And, and here in America, they give us stats sometimes, but it always feels like to me, they're giving us this person's been a 15 time world champion. Yeah, it's, it's like a worked stat. It's, yeah. you know, it doesn't, I mean, it's all work stats, but <laughs> it all, but like, yeah, it's always kind of like, Oh, this person did this. And you know, this time's a champion and this person held the title for this days and Raw's longest running episodic television series in history or whatever the stat they use for that. But That's yeah, right. it's helpful to have that. We'll get into some of the other kind of commentary and broadcast differences as we dive into some of these matches. But um, I think we had, I want to say, how many matches between both nights? Uh, 12 or 14 matches total. Well, it depends if you count the gauntlet matches as individual matches. Yeah. And so this, is, the like kind of, the show. this is kind of the difference between New Japan 2 and um, what we have here in America, which is New Japan does open up a lot of multi-man matches. Of course, we get to WrestleMania season. We're right here on the cusp. We're going to see a bunch of multi-man tag matches, get everybody in the show in a ladder match, that kind of stuff happening at WrestleMania. New Japan does that as well for their big Wrestle Kingdom event. Again, this is their WrestleMania of the year. But they do it for the first part of the show and save the singles matches for the latter part of the show. And it really does build in a nice way. So I think, again, a difference in the way they book their cards. So day one kicked off. Um, we had this um, this really big um, multi-man match to kick everything off here for their, for their pre-show, which is very different than the WWE pre-show. Um, but we had Awatani and Arisha Hoshiki defeating uh, Kimura and Yulia. Um, a tag team uh, stardom special match, a very quick match here, um, went about nine minutes. It was pretty good. Um, but then I think the more interesting opening match here, um, we had uh, the great, great bash heel um, losing or did they win that match? This is now it's been so many matches now. I'm forgetting this. Um, did they win or lose against um, Tohinari, Fredericks, Connors and Coughlin? Good question. This is one of the pre-show matches we had going on. Um, well, the first pre-show match, the women's match, um, 
was not actually shown on New Japan World. Right. There's actually it was very kind of controversial because that's a stardom match, um, and it was the first women's match to be on a New Japan card in I think almost 20 years, and one of the only times in history. And they actually couldn't show that on New Japan World because the reason for that is that even though Stardom was re- recently acquired by Bushi Road, which is the parent company for New Japan Pro Wrestling, uh, on New Japan World is partially owned by TV Ashai, which is the television network that New Japan mm. is on in Japan. And uh, Stardom is on a rival television station. And TV Ashai basically was like, you guys can't show another another network's promotion on the streaming service. So we actually didn't see the Stardom match on New Japan World. And so that was, um, you know, that was a kind this of This was the Iwatani and Hoshiki yes, match defeating Kimura and Gulia, yes. Yes, it was the women's match. And um, there was some controversy with that. It was just kind of a quick match. It didn't, we didn't see it. What I heard in the building was that it didn't, get over that big but it wasn't booed at all or anything like that but it'll be interesting to see how their relationship with stardom continues um it's gonna be tough if they can't show it on new japan world but regardless um the match after that which was the young boys match um taking on great bash heel along with a couple other new japan young boys the um the la dojo guys the americans right. alex coughlin clark connors carl federicks and then along with toa Hanari, they actually won that match and that was the second dark match but the first one we the viewers uh, at home actually got to see yeah and then following that you had another dark match it was uh, hiroshi tenzin and satoshi kojima they beat manubu nakanishi and yuji nagata uh, these are all guys who were big stars in the 90s and are now in their 40s and their work, they're all, some of them guys have aged better than others, but it was just kind of your basic. It's kind of like how they use their legends to a degree. Um, they kind of use them. They're around. They're on like kind of preliminary matches, but you rarely see these guys kind of crack into the main event. It's just kind of how they use the older guys. As um, and we'll get into that with how they use Liger later. But they don't necessarily, you know, in WWE, the older guys would be in the main event. Right, exactly. These yeah. guys are kind of setting up the card and mm-hmm. um, giving giving fans a taste of what to come. And I, I love talking about the women's match here and how this kind of came from uh, this partnership with um, Stardom. And and to me, that's the one thing we talk about in New Japan broadcast and how great these two days of wrestling were. The thing that I still miss is we do not have um, a women's division here for New Japan Pro Wrestling. And so, uh, you know, to me, that's a miss for this product as as they kind of continue to branch out and hopefully find a more American audience here. Yeah, well, it's very political. In Japan, historically, it's been very separate. You have your women's promotions and your men's promotions. And the all-women's promotions historically have been extremely popular. There have been times in history where the women's promotions outdrew many of the men's promotions. Um, There's multiple all-women's promotions in Japan uh, beyond just stardom that are very successful. And it's more – it's not seen as in Japan as being – in America, it's almost seen as like you have to do it. You have like as just as a right of passage, we've seen it with all the um, you know AEW, Ring of Honor adding women. Obviously, Impact's had women for a long time. Uh, WWE as well. In Japan, it's not seen as that big of a deal. Now that could be a cultural difference between American fans expect to see women's wrestling on their product. Um, in Japan, it's kept very separate, and in, uh, that's something that's going to be kind of like a, a East versus West kind of mentality when it comes to New Japan. And we figure out well if they want to recruit American fans they might have to include more women's matches because that's what american fans expect but at the same time historically and uh, the tradition is separate promotions 
Yeah, and, so, and that's very similar to the way we run major sport leagues here, right? New yeah. Japan is the major pro wrestling league there. And to us, it's like, oh, WWE is all of professional wrestling. Well, no, but we still have a separate women's NBA versus a men's NBA. Um, we still have separate divisions and all that stuff in, in NCAA. And so, yeah, it, it kind of makes sense if you, like, to your point, they treat it's, it more like a real sport. A different, it's just a different mentality. I mean, I don't think there's a right or wrong way to do it. Uh, in Japan, I mean, you could say, oh, well, the women should have the opportunity to be on the show, but the you know the argument for that is well, if you want to support women's wrestling, you go to the all women's promotions. Yeah, you know, yeah. if New Japan wanted to start a women's promotion, you could or a women's division within the promotion, you could actually argue that would be unhealthy for women's wrestling in Japan because you'd be taking the best talent away from these successful all women's promotions. Yes, absolutely. So we get into the main card here, and of course, you mentioned this earlier. This is uh kind of using a bunch of legends here, but the main important part of this opening bout was the fact that this was the first of Justin Thunder Liger's two retirement matches, right? And so we have an eight-man tag team match here, um, Justin Thunder Liger being the main focus of kind of what's happening here. Um, but Justin Thunder Liger and his team, they lose to the likes of uh, Sano Otani, Taka Iwa, and um, Taguchi. And uh, I think it's an interesting thing, of course, here in America, we talk about our legends and putting them over here. What stood out to me about all of this in this multi-man match was how respectful everybody was to Jushin Thunder Liger and what he means to the business. Yeah, I mean, Liger, you could argue in America, with the exception of maybe like Antonio Inoki, Liger is probably the most famous Japanese wrestler to American fans. Maybe Great Muda too, but Liger yeah. is someone that even I would say that uh, even if you know, if you're a, a fan of wrestling in America, even if you know nothing about Japanese pro wrestling, chances are you know who Liger is. And um, this was, you know, a part of a year-long storyline where he's going to retire. So the first match was this eight-man tag where it was basically a bunch of people who Liger had been uh, – had rivals, rivalries with, who he had tagged with. I was actually impressed because a lot of these guys are really old. And while, like, facially they looked old, a lot of them were in, like, pretty good cosmetic shape beyond that. And a lot sure. of them – there was, like, some real, like, spots done in this match, which when you yeah. consider these are a bunch of um, – you were, these were a bunch of old people who had wrestled an extremely athletic style for 20 or 30 years. The fact that a lot of them could still do moves uh, was impressive. I mean, uh, on Liger's team, he had Tatsumi Fujinami, who was Liger's idol when Liger was a teenager. And Liger's over 50 years old, and Fujinami, I believe, is 66 years old. And Fujinami didn't do a lot. He just kind of did his dragon screw leg whip, but they and they kind of fed him. But he still looked good doing it. So I was impressed by how these guys have aged. And then, of course, um, Liger lost. He took the pinfall, which was surprising. But in Japan, the veteran guy who's going out, he's retiring. He does the job to Taguchi, who's still active with the idea being, well, I'm going to put over someone who's going to be still wrestling on a regular basis. It's that whole idea of respect, which is so central and ingrained in the Japanese wrestling culture. And that loss right there signifies a lot, not only to the guy who is losing here and going away, which is Jushin Thunder Liger, um, but to the person who picks up the win. And there were some other great talents in here. Uh, on, on Liger's team, we had guys like uh, Fujinami, the great Sasuke, um, Tiger Mask. Of course, there's a storied history there with Tiger Mask, and um, and El Samurai was on the sidelines there. Yeah, it was a lot of big. It was a lot of big names, and, and I mean, Fujinami is a bigger star in Japan than Liger. I mean, he's not as big of a star to us because uh, Fujinami didn't wrestle that much in the U.S. Although I think he did wrestle Ric Flair in the main event of a WCW pay per view in 1993. But yeah. he like um, 
and you see the comment doom trap teasing fujinami looked incredible for his age i thought like he still had, had kind of had like a muscle definition which i was like unbelievable for a guy that old i was really impressed even though he didn't really take any bumps but i mean it was like a big kind of like all these legends kind of just being and i think fujinami after the match said that like he was really proud of what liger had become and it was like it's like oh that's so nice fujinami said that about liger because liger always looked up to fujinami um but it was yeah it was really a junior heavyweight royalty uh in japan Absolutely. And, and Doom Tribe points out here, Fujinami looked great for his age. Um, can't lose sight of the fact that most of you American fans who do know Liger probably picked him up in the early 90s. Um, he, mm-hmm. he came over, wrestled in WCW. I know at the time for me, I was a young wrestling fan and it was really cool. Of course, I'm wearing a, a Power Rangers hat for the podcast tonight. But part of the reason is because Liger came over and represented something about Japanese culture that we here in America didn't see a whole lot, right? This kind of this uh, very flamboyant style, um, very uh, not eccentric, but just very colorful, very bright, um, very high flying, um, very quick. And something you saw throughout a lot of Japanese culture that we got in snippets, right? I, I'm a big Power Rangers fan because I watched it growing up and I found out later how steep that was in a variety of other things from Japanese entertainment. So um, Liger represents a lot to American audience from that perspective if you followed him since he was in WCW. Yeah, I mean, the Jushin Liger character is based off of a manga. Yeah. And his intro music is the music from the anime series that he had. So he's definitely like, yeah, you're right. That's a good point that he, not only was he unique because of his wrestling style, was pretty much unseen in US when he came on, but also the kind of Japanese culture that he kind of brought with him as far as what we would later become much more mainstream in America. So we followed up with a uh, another eight-man tag match here. We had Suzuki Gun um, defeating. Um, we had Sonata. This was a stacked match here. A ton of great talent we would see on both days. Um, Sonata, Evil, Tagagi, and Bushi. And um, the big thing here um, being that Zack Sabre Jr. picked up the victory by submission. And I, I really liked um, Zack Sabre Jr. in this, knowing that he was going to come back on day two. And we'll talk more about that match here in a minute. And wrestle again. This match was really setting up the showdown that he would have on night two um, going up against Sonata. And and so I like the fact that, number one, Zack Sabre Jr. picked up the win via submission. Number two, at the end of the match, Sonata was kind of staring him down. But there's also this detail here. Um, here in Amer- America, when, when somebody goes to break up something, I can just do a loose kick or a loose punch, right? And whatever mm-hmm. you're doing just gets let go. If there's a pin attempt, if I just land on you with my right hand, that pin attempt is over. But in New Japan, Zack Sabre Jr. had this submission still locked in after the match. They're calling for the bell. And Sonata had to kick him multiple times and then pull him off to break it up. And it adds to this element of realism, I think, that you really do get from the style of wrestling, this quote-unquote strong style we see in New Japan. Yeah, and one of the things about these eight-man tag match, first of all, they're done to kind of get everyone on the card for starters. But with the kind of with this year being back-to-back shows, you kind of got like, uh, it was kind of like a preview match for, it got you more into the match the following night because you saw them kind of have this exchange. I kind of joked after night one, I was like, man, that was the greatest go-home show in wrestling (laughs) history because it kind of was like, it just was kind of, was around just to set up night two. And I thought both with this um, tag team match and uh, that's the one that followed it, the other eight man tag. Well, yeah, I got everyone on the, card it did kind of help um set up the some key matches obviously you had this one was the sonata and the saber junior match and then the next match which i don't think we really need to talk about that much but it was another amen tag it was the um chaos haruki goto tomohiro ishii toroyanu and yoshihashi 
They beat the Bullet Club team of Bad Luck Fale, Chase Owens, Kenta, and Yujiro Takahashi. And that was kind of to set up really the Kenta versus Hiroki Goto match, which would take yeah. place the next night. So there were kind of like little hype matches in addition to just being the eight-man tag matches. Uh, and then after that, we kind of moved on to what would be considered more of the main card with the title matches. Yeah, well, I think it's a great point. This, this night would, especially the first half, really did feel like the ultimate go-home show in pro wrestling history. Yeah, I mean, the matches were the matches were fine. But if I was to recommend, if you hadn't watched um, Wrestle Kingdom yet, I would say that unless you're really, really interested in getting like the full New Japan experience, or if you just want to see good matches, you can basically skip everything up until the U.S. title match on this show on night one. It's kind of just kind of preview stuff. 100% agree. We still have we have people still in the chat room. This is the importance of Liger here, pouring out their love for him, giving us these comments about how important he is to them and, and the moments they remember for him. So yeah, still again here, Liger going and retiring after these two days is really important here. All these eight-man tag matches, and even this tag team match for the IWGP Tag Team Championship um, really were, to your point, setting up night two. I do want to point out here, uh, this Chaos uh, versus Bullet Club match was the first of what felt like Bullet Club really taking it on the chin throughout these two nights, right? It was brought up on night two. Bullet Club lost a lot of matches, and this kind of set the tone for that. Um, and, of course, Kenta being involved in this match as well um, with losing in the next day. So uh, interesting storytelling over both days, and I really like that. Uh, but, I, you know, let's talk about this IDW, IWGP Tag Team Championship match for just a minute here. Finn Juice. I love what they're doing. Of course, uh, Gorillas of Destiny, Tama Tonga, Tonga Loa have, have been great champions. They, they are great talents. Um, they'll be a great talent stateside if they ever come back over here, which I think we will see them. But Finn Juice, they've really found something special uh, with Juice Robinson and David Finley. Yeah, I mean, they're going to be an interesting tag team. Tag teaming is one of like the, the at least the heavyweight tag division is kind of one of the weak points of new Japan. That's what a lot of people feel uh, criticized of how Gato's booked the promotion is that tag teams aren't taken super seriously. And there hasn't been a ton of depth to the division. The gorillas of destiny have been around for a long time. Sure. And so kind of getting juice Robinson and David Finley on that level is good. Juice was kind of, it was kind of odd for juice because he had the U S title next night. He was kind of in two separate unrelated title matches on back to back nights. But I think him and Finley as a tag team is a good spot for both of them to be. Finley's a good talent. He's a fourth generation wrestler, which I think he's probably the only person. There's probably someone else out there, but I don't know if there's any fourth generation wrestlers out there uh, until the Randy Orton or the rocks kids. Start <laughs> right. right. But it's it's pretty rare, and um, but he hasn't really found a good role in New Japan. It's obviously a very difficult promotion to kind of break into because there's so much talent. So I think that's a good the tag team match. It was it was okay match. I didn't think it was like the best match on the card or anything like that. And um, but as the first title match, it kind of felt a little bit more significant, and it was a fine match. And I think they'll be good tag team champions. Yeah, all these matches too in these early cards, uh, they they don't try to steal the show, right? WWE, you might open up with a world title match, and they'll try to steal the show, which is strange. But here in New Japan, it's almost like they know the pecking order, and so the finishes will be a little more standard. Um, this tag match was good, but it wasn't a flashy finish, anything like that. Yeah, um, it's a big it's a big difference philosophically for how you build your cards. WWE, you know, the first match on the card is usually the second most important match behind right. the main event, but. And the idea is like, we'll have these big matches and then we'll kind of have these lull periods where the crowd will cool down because the crowd can't be hot for four hours. But to me, that usually ends to these like match random matches that are in between the big matches just dying and nobody reacts to them and they're boring. Um, as opposed to this, it kind of continues to build. And just overall with the pacing of the show, one of the things in New Japan uh, desperately needs is um, this to be the case is that they 
pace the show really well where they don't have a ton of video packages and promos and in between stuff, the matches end and then they kind of move on to the next one. So if you're staying up late and you're watching it and it's already a four or five hour show, it doesn't feel quite that long because you're getting most of that as action as opposed to there being a lot of downtime where you're just kind of looking at your phone or whatever. Absolutely. We talked about how Spartan these broadcasts are, but some of that's mm-hmm. by design, right? They don't have yeah. a ton of, they do like little vignettes in between like the videos. They don't do a whole lot of in, in ring mic. They don't, they uh, conversations. They don't do backstage segments, right? They hit the music and the guy comes down and then there's a brief interlude, but they don't even have match cards that often. They cut to the arena's match cards, mm-hmm. um, but, but they don't do a whole lot of other stuff, which I think again, adds to the element of realism. They don't do a whole lot of crowd shots. Every once in a while you get a crowd reaction, but it's not super frequent. Um, and it especially helps. We talk about pacing of the shows. Some of these main event matches are long matches. I mean, this night one main event goes 40 minutes long. Uh, last year we had a match that went, what, 50? I mean, these matches can go up to 60 minutes long for the time limit draw. Mm-hmm. And they start off slow to get there. At Okada match, typically, Okada, he, he goes 15 minutes, a very slow pace. So uh, these cards can get long. These matches can get long. So keeping the pace up helps those lulls in between not feel quite so dramatic. Mm-hmm. So we had, um, of course, you mentioned this, the first main match. If you've not watched anything else, check this match out so far. John Moxley defeated Lance Archer in this Texas death match for the IWGP United States Championship. Um, Lance Archer, for guys who don't know him, if you guys just tuned in to see Moxley, you got what you wanted here. But Lance Archer is the guy to me that I think he's a huge talent. Um, New Japan has found a way to really utilize him in the last year. He had that great run last year in the G1 Climax. A dude has the size, has the physique. And while this was not a death match to the standard of what we saw from Kenny Omega and Moxley earlier this year or Kenny Omega and Joey Janela. It was a different kind of death match. The kind where Lance Archer literally grabbed one of the young lions and threw him, used him as a weapon against Moxley. So I love this. Yeah, it was a good match. Archer is really interesting because he's been around forever. He was in TNA for a while. He was in WWE for a brief spill. Uh, it took, he was in a tag, he was in new Japan for a few years. He was in a tag team and he kind of broke out last year as a single star. And you look at this guy and like, Hmm, you know, this guy's six foot seven, maybe Uh good, good, big guy just plays the big monster foreign heel. It's a classic role in Japan. It's been, well, there's been one since there was pro wrestling in Japan. Uh, so he's been great in that role and he, you know, held his own. Moxley is a big star, but I thought Archer looked really well, did really well in this match. And yeah, it was called a Texas death match. The rules were more similar to like a uh, last man standing match. It was more like a last man standing match, but there were also submissions. So it was right. basically, you could only win by either um, having your opponent not respond to a, a count of 10 and, or um, not having a, uh, or get winning by a submission. So that was kind of the difference between, it wasn't like a, just a regular like street fighter death match. Uh, but they were called the Texas death match. I don't know what made it Texas. Lance Archer's from Texas. <laughs> Lance Archer's from Texas yeah, right. that's the difference. Got to call on, call on the Van, Von Erics every chance you get here. Right. So, yeah. And they, um, and it was, yeah, it was good. I liked that the finishing spot, which was, they did the, he did the dirty D or not the dirty deeds, the, um, death rider. It's the uh, dirty deeds. We can call well, it the dirty deeds. It's D's the stuff. death rider. It's very confusing. It's the death rider in New Japan, but it's the paradigm shift in AEW. And yeah. it's the dirty deeds if he goes back to WWE eventually uh, one day. So it's very confusing. But the double arm lifting DDT, he hits it off the apron into the tables. It was a good spot. And I liked that Like when they cut to Archer and he hadn't responded, he had bladed. So he was bleeding. So you're like, oh, wow, this dude's like really messed up. And that's why he couldn't respond to the 10 count. It kind of sold the idea of like, oh, wow, Moxley really messed him up there with that move. I thought that helped with the finish. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and, and so uh, one really small thing here, but it helps. Uh, you mentioned the finish here and what that looked like and how that detail added to the brutality of the match. I also got to say again here, Kevin Kelly doing a great job. Archer was going for a spot on the top rope where uh, he's basically doing the Undertaker, right? Where he had Moxley by the arm and he either tripped and fell or it was part of the plan. But a true testament to the talent in this match, which is number one, Moxley immediately reacted and started wailing him with the kendo stick or uh, he, maybe he, he hit him first, um, but he started hitting him and it felt like it was part of the match. Like, Archer was supposed to fall right there, which maybe was the intent. But then also Kelly telling the story here said he saw Moxley grab the kendo stick out of the corner of his eye, which caused him to fall. So they're giving these guys a reason for what happened. Um, and it did it, it did a really good job all the way around. So love that match. Um, I think, you know, again, Moxley being over there is a unique draw, both, both because he's an AEW guy, but also because he's a different kind of face. For New Japan Pro Wrestling, it's not the kind of same person you see. These type of matches are different, um, and it adds to the variety of the card. Of course, I, as some people said this is going to be the match of the weekend. We had some really great spots from this. The next matchup was Hiromu Takahashi versus Will Ospreay for the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship. And I got to say, dude, this thing had some of the sickest sequences I've seen in a pro wrestling match all year. I thought this was a genius match. I thought that it had really high expectations. It had a great story with Hiromu coming back from having broken his neck, having been out for a while, now going back for the title. He didn't know what he was really going to look like. He wrestled a reckless style before. Natural to think that he would be very different after he had suffered a very close to career-ending injury. Uh, but it turns out he wrestles the exact same style. He's taken all these risks, which maybe isn't good for his long-term health, but as a viewer, I was blown away by this match. Um, Osprey, I, I guess I can understand why some people don't like him. I think that night in and night out, he's the best wrestler in the world. Uh, if you just watch him, just, it doesn't, uh, this was the Tokyo Dome. Obviously he's going to deliver, but if you just watch him on a regular basis, he kind of does this kind of stuff normally, like in front of a thousand people and not 40,000, but it was just a, you write about the sequences. There was the great, like Osprey did two Sasuke specials kind of like back to back in sequence, but there was also like he hit the Sasuke special and then he tried to run back like and run over Hiromu and then they're on the outside and Hiromu gives him like a belly to belly and Osprey like, instead of like would probably crash into the apron, but he's so coordinated that he just kind of like shoots through. It was like a reverse tope. He like yeah. a reverse suicide dive. He like shoots through the ropes into the ring, like rolls into the ring and then immediately hits the ropes and hits another Sasuke special. And that was, I mean, I've seen a lot of high spots and a lot of everyone, you know, everyone's trying to do the new innovative thing. I've never seen that before. And I was like, wait, what, what was that? I had a, you know, new Japan world has a little 30 second rewind button that you can just press. And I'm just like, Oh man, I gotta see oh, that. Again. Right. I, mean, yeah. I was like, wait, what, ha what, how did that happen? Yeah. Um, but yeah, this was just an awesome match and it had a great story. And we that talked was about probably like, that would be the gift of the weekend for these two shows, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's that 30 second sequence you just mentioned over and over and over again. Well, and I know people don't like what they call the quote unquote flippy shit, right? Like people aren't into yeah. all, some people aren't, I should say, but I think what's different here is the, the, the speed at which they delivered it in this match. And they still base it around a lot of ground wrestling that it made it believable. I think when it's like, so choreographed, you see this in some indie sometimes where it's like, you can tell they, they know what the next move is going to be. And it doesn't feel there's a natural fluid evolution of the match. Mm -hmm. That's when it feels fake. But I think what, what Hiromu and Osprey did here was incredible. And um, I, I think it really set Osprey up for both guys look great. And I think it set Osprey up for what's going to be now that sequence we mentioned earlier, Osprey did get injured. It looks like, I don't know the extent of the injury um, or how long he'll yeah, be out. He hurt his heel 
and there's no real known. Will Ospreay also like famously broke his toe and like wrestled like 10 matches over WrestleMania weekend with a broken toe. So I think he's kind of indestructible um, for the most part. But well, a, a big thing about this match was that unlike most of the guys on the card on night one, Osprey didn't have a match on night two. So he was kind of incentivized to go all out because he knew he didn't have to do anything after, you know, this show, which I think helped him. And also there was that great bit of um, commentary. I, I pointed out uh, earlier about the mentioning, Oh, Horomo has been working on something else. He's got a different finishing move. And that yeah. kind of psychologically got my, my, uh, the gears turning in my head. Like, Ooh, wonder what it's going to be because he's probably not going to move the time bomb. Cause it would be weird if they teased it. And then we didn't see the, whatever the new thing was. So I thought everything like execution wise, both in the ring and on commentary, this was great. Uh, I think it's better. I think this Matt, this is night one had two matches on it that were, I can say legitimately better than any match I saw in 2019. Mm, wow. That's in my opinion. Pretty. Yeah. I mean, I was looking, and this at is one of them you think. Yeah. This is one of them. And then the main event uh, of night one, and I was just like, you know what? I I'm like, I, the match of the year is going to be a really difficult choice for me already. Sure. And because there's already two great candidates. And I think we probably got a third one, uh, uh, on night two, but that was just, I mean, just in my opinion, that was, this was, this was a top tier match. You want to see? Well, wrestle kingdom 14 does this to us or wrestle kingdom in general. Does yeah. This. They did over some of the best matches of the year. And it's the very first thing. I also think it's interesting because Osprey here took the, took the loss, right? Hiromu won. And, and I also want to call it, I think Hiromu reminds me of like uh, the new Japan pro wrestling version of somebody like Dalton Castle, just that flamboyant nature, the kind of gear he wears. And, and you know, what's interesting to me is the kind of gear, like all these, this presentation of new Japan, we talked about it a lot tonight, but it's different because in WWE, if you are, so let's say, for example, you're the fiend, you're Bray Wyatt. Mm-hmm. You don't just wear this kind of special gear that becomes your persona or your character. If you're the Undertaker, WWE wants you to believe you're actually a dead man. But I think we saw numerous cases over these two days where in New Japan, you're allowed to be flamboyant. You're allowed to show that artistic side of yourself, wear awesome gear. I mean, evil coming out earlier in the show with this just incredible mm-hmm. um, gear that just is nothing you'd see. But he's not actually trying to pretend like he's death right it's just part of his presentation about who he comes out and that he's still a normal person and i think the big difference is new japan still treats them all like wrestlers whereas wwe almost sometimes wants you to believe you're watching this invulnerable character um doing wrestling yeah i mean it's the difference between you know costuming and marketing and having a gimmick and yeah like evil has like a little bit of a gimmick but you're right he's not being presented as being a dead person he just kind of like that's you're supposed to be you know, he could come out wearing a, having a giant scythe and wearing a cloak and all that kind of stuff like that. And Hiromu, interesting enough, uh, and this is pretty surprising if you think about um, Hiromu, it was recently reported, Hiromu is the second biggest merch seller in New Japan oh. behind Okada. So, and, and you know, Hiromu is a junior heavyweight. He's, you know, he sells, but apparently according to merchandise sales, he sells more merchandise than Naito. He sells more merchandise than Tanahashi. He sells more than Jay White or Kota Bushi or any of these people, which it's pretty interesting from a marketing standpoint because I mean, New Japan thrives on merchandise sales. It's sure. not uncommon for them to make more money off of merchandise sales than they do from the gate. Uh, just you know, they do great per head numbers, and Hermo is a huge part of that. And he's you know, there's a great story of him coming back from broken neck and winning the title, obviously. And if he can remain healthy and wrestling the way he does, I hate to say it, but it's questionable if he's going to have be healthy for the long haul. But he has plenty. A ridiculous amount of potential. Sure, absolutely. Well, and 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 of course he is obviously New Japan season two. They make him the new um, champion here. But I want to call out Osprey too. We talk about the injury. That aside, they're 
poised, positioning Osprey up, and he is poised, I think, to have a great run in 2020. Um, they talk about this a lot on commentary, telling the story of how he wants this championship um, to be the premier championship and for it to be the title that main events Wrestle Kingdom. I don't think that will happen. We're not going to have an IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship in the main event, but I do think we might see um, Osprey have a really good run and maybe have a, a good shot at the G1 this year. Yeah, I mean, I think Will Ospreay, if you wanted to make him the IWGP champion by the end of the year, I'm all for that. If you take him, push him as a serious heavyweight, I don't think there's any reason not to do it. He's as good as anyone in wrestling. He's over. Um, he lives in Japan full-time, which is key for a foreigner looking to get a big push. Yep. Um, so all of that stuff is in his favor. Um, but, you know, it's historically been difficult for junior heavyweights to crack into the heavyweight division. There's been a few guys who have successfully done it, but – they're kind of positioned at a different level and there's kind of nothing there's seen there's nothing really wrong uh being career junior heavyweight just sure. like liger obviously is is a perfect example of that although he did have a very unmemorable failed heavyweight run in the uh, i think like year 2000 but beside the point yeah i mean osprey can be can do anything if they ask him to do anything i feel like he could do anything i think the elephant in the room for new japan is that they push when kenny omega left they pushed Jay White to kind of replace Kenny Omega as like the top foreign guy. And we saw that over these two nights that he's clearly positioned as the top foreigner in the company. But the secret is, is that Osprey's way over, more over than Jay sure. White. And Osprey is way more over to Western fans, which is yep. a key part of this whole thing. Yep. So I think that's something that they're going to have to figure out. Because if you want to give Will Osprey the Jay White push, and I think Jay White's fine, but I feel like from just a skill standpoint and who's more over, I think Osprey's better equipped for that role than maybe White is. Well, and Osprey is very clearly following in the likes of guys that have come before him who have been mega stars, guys like Kenny Omega, guys like Finn Balor slash Prince Devitt. Um, so I think that's the other thing here is it does seem like he's going that same pathway uh, and he has a bigger uh, American, has a bigger name here in America than somebody like Jay White. But let's talk about Jay White because we had this kind of double main event for night one and I think both matches were really fantastic. Um, they both the Delivered. Of course, the thread here being um, the winners of both matches would fight on night two. Of course, the losers um, would fight in a, a loser match. I called it the loser leaves town match. It was not actually a loser leaves town match. But the winners would fight in this double gold dash match to not unify, but to become the first ever IWGP Intercontinental slash IWGP Heavyweight Championship. Um, and uh, this was, I think... Uh, a great match, um, Tetsuya Naito fighting Jay White. Um, Jay White has been in a really interesting spot here. Naito, of course, trying to fight back his way. He, they called him, he said he was in the bottom of the ninth. This was his chance to potentially fight his way back into a championship picture. Uh, Jay White does have the force of the company behind him. Uh, he was the champion coming into this. He was not the champion leaving. Naito gets the win here. Uh, what do you think about this match? Well, the story of these matches, these both um, – the two main events tonight, or the two main events tonight, one, and then the um, the kind of follow up matches, the main, the obviously the Okada Naito match, and then the Ibushi White match is kind of like the loser, the consolation match. Right. Um, the story of that match is, uh, you know, Naito had the uh, IWGP Heavyweight Championship match uh, back at Wrestle Kingdom 12 in 2018, and he lost. Right. And a lot of people thought that Naito should have won. A lot of people thought that it was his time. And, and that it was a loss that kind of hurt his popularity. And you could argue to this day, even though he won tonight, that he still should have won in 2018. But the story is, is that that failure was what drove Naito for the next two years. It chased him. It was a curse that was on his head. He really had to win 
during and during this year's Wrestle Kingdom to kind of everything to come full circle to kind of win that. So obviously with Naito beating White and then beating Okada, that's the story, right? He you have to fail before you succeed. Sure. And I think when we saw with Ibushi uh, over these last two nights, he's now kind of Naito two years ago. He you could make a case that he should have beat Okada uh, and that he could have been the IWGB champion uh, right now, but he had to fail before he could succeed. And I think that's a key aspect of the storytelling for all these matches in the main event. I think particularly um, in the second night's main event, that's a huge part. But here too is that Naito, like Naito had a lot more to lose than Jay White in this match. If he lost sure. this match, he probably is never going to be IWGP heavyweight champion again. Um, but that's a key. I think that is the key story that was kind of unfolded over these last few main events. Well, at Jay White here, we talked earlier about uh, the connection here to the Bullet Club. Jay White emerging as the leader of the Bullet Club and um, his position in New Japan, how important he is to them moving forward. But Naito's story is what I think they wanted. The bookers here wanted us to get behind Matt the most. And you told the story over two nights, right? And these guys had a great match here. Um, the, the audience was tired, but had a really fun, fast finish. I thought, yeah, I thought it was a little difficult coming off of the Osprey Takahashi match, like sure. for them to get going. They got, they got, they were there by the end, but I think up until the, um, up until about midway through the match, it was kind of like, okay, we need to take a breather. We need yep. to like recuperate, especially because you go from guys wrestling so fast to guys kind of wrestling at a more methodical pace. Right. And what, what was the classic New Japan pro wrestling format, which is we go slow before we go fast here. But it gave Naito that credibility in the win on the first night. Um, and of course, you mentioned the main event for night one, Okada versus Ibushi. Ibushi having that great run of securing this spot in the G1 Climax. And um, to his thing, if he can overcome uh, and defeat Okada, Okada is the golden boy of New Japan Pro Wrestling. He's going to be an Olympic torchbearer in 2020, right? But mm -hmm. yet you also had the young gun here, Ibushi. Uh, and, and you know, I think more interesting to me about these two matches, Naito emerging, his story here was really important. But also Ibushi's story, right? Okada is Okada, but Ibushi's been going through a transformation. The G1 was kind of what it felt like, maybe step one. He's not going to win the title. Uh, some people thought he might. I, I did not think he would. I um, mean, he did not win the title. But it's the question is for me is what does Ibushi do next? Because the consolation match here on night two, Jay White versus Ibushi. And Ibushi lost again. So that's two major losses coming off of a pretty good year in, in 2019. Um, his character, it seems like, might be undergoing some kind of change. Yeah, it's interesting. I thought just based on what we saw the last two nights, I feel like the story might be that Ibushi was like, too intense and too vengeful. Sure. There was a great spot in this match, the Okada versus Ibushi match, where Ibushi started just kind of, he started kicking Okada in the head and then started giving him like these loud open palm strikes to the head. And the crowd started booing him, which is very rare. The crowd rarely boos Ibushi, but the crowd, and this kind of tells you about the Japanese crowd versus the American crowd, is the crowd saw Ibushi basically doing something that was heelish, that was um, unsportsmanlike. And they didn't like that, and they immediately let him know, like, we don't like that you're doing this. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting. I thought the announcers, the announcers did a great job in this match, in particular the Okada-Ibushi match, because Ibushi would, he, he'd hit a kick, at a specific time or he'd do the palm strike and it would sound loud and the announcers would be like talking about something else. And then they would just stop and be like, Oh, Oh, yeah. they couldn't believe that. Like, Oh my God, like I can't believe he hit him that hard. And it really sold that. It wasn't just this guy wasn't just hitting him. He wasn't just kicking him. Like it was anything else. It's like, Oh my God, this could end the match right here. Which sure. is, and that was really important um, overall for the structure of the match. But I do think there's something for Abushi who's at different times been kind of like presented as being like, 
uh, carefree, not comedic, but like open to comedy character. Sure. Well, his and, run with Kenny Omega was yeah, kind of built around that, right? It's kind of like there's a little like level of goofiness into it, but that's what kind of made him so endearing was that he was obviously this amazing athlete and this great wrestler, but was also kind of like open to wacky stuff. Sure. And in both of these matches uh, he had uh, at Wrestle Kingdom, he did this fascinating kind of like, it was like kind of like he was almost like hulking up like Hulk Hogan used to do, but it was like the strong style version of it. Yep. So he was yep. no selling, but he just had this blank expression on his face, but was somehow also like a really telling facial expression. It was really impressive. They just showed him like, he doesn't know where he is. Like, what is he doing? Like, he doesn't feel like he was taking, like he took Okada's drop kick and he just like kind of stood up or he was taking these forearm blows and he just kind of kept like Terminator walking towards him. It was kind of fascinating to see his character do that. And I don't know how it's going to tie in in the future, but I think the obvious comparison is Naito two years ago coming up short at Wrestle Kingdom and that kind of fueling him over the next few years that now Ibushi's on that track. And eventually yeah. Ibushi will find himself at the top of the mountain in New Japan. But tonight it, was, it wasn't his turn. It was Ibushi's well, it's, turn. It's, like I mean, all, it's, continue, it's a continuing story here, right? It's, mm-hmm. in, Naito was, was the underdog in, in these two evenings. Ibushi maybe is in two years. Before that, it was Kenny Omega was the underdog at one point, And he had to mm-hmm. fight his way yeah. in multiple he times. He lost that Wrestle Kingdom. He, right. lost, you know, he had to draw with a... Uh, they have a very uh, traditional format to kind of tell the same story with different characters. But it seems to work. And also I think it works because you mentioned the fans. The fans... Fans do seem more receptive to traditional pro wrestling storytelling. Here in America, uh, we just kind of want to take ownership over the matches and really express ourselves there. If a good guy does a bad thing, they boo him. And I think that's a really cool factor that plays into the way these matches play out here. Also, Okada here, um, of course, setting up the the match between himself and Naito, the next match to uh, have both titles in the same person. But Okada being an Olympic torchbearer, and I just want to ask you, Jesse, can you imagine if... Um, this is how big New Japan is to Japan that one of the major faces, one of the biggest players in this company is going to be a torchbearer for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. That would be like if we had John Cena as a torchbearer for the Olympics here in America. And I just don't think it's the same level of respect for pro wrestling um, because of the brands and how different it's portrayed. Yeah, I mean, there's it's kind of some people in America, it's kind of easy to dismiss the popularity of the new japan wrestlers in japan because like well you know they don't draw in america it doesn't matter which if you don't watch japanese wrestling it it doesn't matter because you would never hear or see about or see them but obviously these guys are extremely popular i mean there's this back-to-back tokyo dome sellouts that's eighty thousand people over two days um you know i don't where's where's wrestlemania's in tampa bay this year so i don't think wrestlemania's gonna do eighty thousand people uh at tampa bay i think the stadium seats about 75 for football maybe and probably less for wrestling but that's beside the point point is that they're obviously very popular and it was actually kind of funny because i saw a lot of people being like okada is going to win both titles because he's carrying the olympic torch and they want to have the champion be the olympic torch and i kind of like laughed a little bit when i saw that because that's like that's exactly what wwe would do wwe would be like we have to have the title on this guy because he's carrying the torch and this is big crossover possibility and i was like you know new japan doesn't think like that they're going to do what's best for their storylines and they're actually not going to be worried about this outside thing it's great that he was able to do it um and obviously he's a big star Uh, i don't know how many torchbearers there are like how many people i know like there's running different legs of it and that kind of stuff but it's obviously a big honor not everyone's going to be able to do it um so it's very interesting um you know, this is a big year for Japan in general with the 2020 Olympics coming up. And that kind of uh, – we did on night two, we had the announcements for the um, 
like the upcoming shows. Mm. And they mentioned that they, we kind of knew this already, but they confirmed that the G1 was going to take place in October instead of August. And the general belief on that is because the Olympics are going to be in August and the Olympics are going to be using a lot of the venues that uh, new Japan normally runs. And that also it's going to kind of gas out all forms of spectator sports or entertainment to be running at the same time as Olympics, because why would you go to night 12 of the G1 if, you know, the Olympic final and is on the same night is, is on the same. Exactly. So, it's well, so my question is, which is it, which is tougher to train for? Is it harder to uh, train for the Olympics or is it harder to train for the G1 climax? Because that's a marathon. Right well, there. as both an Olympic <laughs> athlete and a G1 competitor myself. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I mean, I was impressed. I mean, tonight, I mean, you saw Naito and Okada and Ibushi and white to wrestle those matches like in basically a 24 hour period. I yep. mean, the conditioning of those guys, the ability to kind of bounce back from taking bumps. It's um, really, really, it, that was a huge impressive part of this match, but uh, of the show, but, but, you know, obviously the main event of night one, I think that was the best match of both shows. It's probably my favorite, probably going to be my match of the year, but obviously it's a little bit early to say that, but yep. Well, let's dive into let's dive into that too just a little bit yeah. because I went on to cover every match and every match had a huge level of importance here. Um, but there are some big takeaways here. I, I want to bring up here talking about this conversation about the Olympics, Okada being a torchbearer. Hector Torres brings up um, wrestling is highly regarded as a sport in Japan versus in the USA where it's seen more as a form of entertainment. And I think that is the big difference is we we see it as entertainment and they promote it as though it is a legitimate sport. And um, I, I just think it's a fascinating difference here. So of course, again, we had a multi man match kickoff night too um, for the never open six-man tag team championship not a lot to get into here but i do think it's important that there's been conversations stateside about having a six-man title and i think you see a match like this with all of these different guys involved we had uh, evil in it uh, we had the most violent players in it um i got a bunch of guys too who can be um, um individuals right we had chase owens in it um bad luck Fale. And what a six-man championship can do, not as though it's its own division, but to involve – WWE does six-man titles all the time. You can involve other main eventers in those kinds of sequences. Yeah, I mean, New Japan has all these multi-man tag matches anyway because it uses a device to get them on their on the show. We talked about that on night one. So you yeah. might as well have some title match on the line. You could argue that like the show would have been better if they didn't have this. And instead they had like a Shingo Takagi Tomohiro Ishii singles match that a lot of people wanted to see. Like, yeah, that would be a better match than this kind of gauntlet match, which doesn't really mean that much, but it does mean something. You got to get these guys in the show. There's a lot yeah. of people, you know, it, I don't, I'm not ever going to fault New Japan for being like making sure that people who have worked with the company for the full year get a chance to be on the show, even if they're just doing a spot or two. So it's just, it's fine to open the show. They, this kind of replaced the New Japan rumble. They used to do kind of like a, battle royal uh on the pre-show in previous years but for now that they have the six-man titles they've kind of switched to doing this kind of gauntlet style match in it's fine it's harmless it gets you know everyone comes I in i do miss the rumble spots. though the rumble was the rumble was always fun yeah they used to you know throw in some surprises and stuff yeah. like that and it was kind of it was you know it's kind of cute but um you know it's just you know this is the replacement for that but yeah it, it's a good it's a good i like the idea of like helping legitimize this a little bit by having titles. The titles don't really mean a lot. They kind of switch hands a lot. Nobody really, you know, keeps track of the lineage, you know, uh, outside of like Wikipedia or cage. Well, match, the, but. the undercard titles maybe don't mean as much, but I think you talk about the main titles mean more. And so oh. I think it is an interesting balance where we have these titles that kind of are a little more propish, but the bigger titles, the IWGP Heavyweight Championship, highly regarded, right? Oh, one of the big things about this, the takeaways from Wrestle Kingdom, not to compare this to WWE all the time, but 
like the world title means so much more in New Japan. Like the sure. prestige of having it, what it means to to have it, what it means to be the guy in the main event every night. Like it just it, it kind of makes me like I'm like you know it kind of makes me sad that WWE's world titles aren't taken quite as seriously. And at one time they totally were, but sure. it just feels like now the title matches kind of feel less important for for various reasons. Most of it just comes down to booking, but. It yeah. does say something that the title is, you know, you could build such a successful two nights of Tokyo Dome salads based around the titles. Absolutely. Well, and so uh, that was, of course, kickoff match. The first major match of the show tonight or this morning was the actual uh, Justin Thunder Liger um, retire Jushin Thunder Liger retirement match. Um, big thing here for me is that um, Hiromu Takahashi, we were just talking about earlier, um, he picked up the victory here over Jushin Thunder Liger. And I really thought this was, um, number one, everybody paid huge amounts of respect to Liger. Um, that's such an incredible thing. I think about Kurt Angle retired earlier this year, and he essentially retired as part of an angle just to make Baron Corbin look a little more sleazy. Mm -hmm. And here, a huge retiring athlete retiring on a huge stage gets all the respect in the world, even from guys that were his opponents. And I think that is incredible. Um, the big win here uh, for Takahashi. And he even said Takahashi leaned over at one point and said um, he promised to carry on Liger's legacy here. So it really did feel like a passing of the torch. And it's such a huge contrast to the way we treated Kurt Angle uh, just, you know, about 10 months ago. Well, don't, don't say we don't want me into this, Michael. <laughs> it's WWE that did this. We want, right. we love Kurt Angle. Right. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it's a, I mean, in, in Liger did the job. It wasn't like he went over just, you know, just like how Angle did the job. But you're right. There's a degree of respect that comes from and it almost makes it feel makes Hiromu feel like a bigger star. Yes. That he retired that then um, that he paid respect to him. But then he was like, nah, whatever. I beat that guy. He doesn't mean anything to me. You know, yeah. trying to get like some heel heat. It makes it feel like a bigger deal where he's like, thank you for, for all you've done. I will carry on your legacy. Like it just especially I mean. Everyone was a baby face and Corbin's a heel. So you're going to get that dynamic anyway, but it is an interesting contrast. And I feel like it's almost better to be like, you know, put over the guy that you beat, right. Put yeah. over the guy as a legend, as opposed to just being, you know, washed up or anything like that. WWE has a habit of presenting their older wrestlers um, with the exception of the undertaker and triple H, of course, uh, as kind of being, Oh, they're old. They, you know, get beat up by the younger guys, that kind of stuff, as opposed to maybe ha being respectful, more respect respectful for them. And in turn, when they do put guys over, it helps them. Well, again, this is the conversation that we had earlier about how guys in New Japan are wrestlers. They're not characters or personas. Mm -hmm. They are just the person and they may be good or bad, but even like in, in the States, Baron Corbin, we just kind of see him as being, Baron Corbin, the bad guy in WWE, but he's probably somebody else outside of that. And I think it does undermine their ability to do something like this because Baron Corbin, the TV character, would never pay respect. Whereas Baron Corbin, the human being, even if he's a bad dude, might would pay respect. And it's just a huge difference here in mentality. And I think it also it, it plays different too because so often WWE does these kind of post-match beatdowns and attacks and all this kind of stuff. And they do it so frequently that it almost feels like blasé. Whereas in New Japan, there is so much respect shown that when they do one of those angles where somebody is attacked either before or after the match, it feels shocking because it's not overused. And I, I like that dynamic as well here. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, just, you know, good to see Liger kind of go out on a high note here, even though he lost, um, setting up some success for the future. Uh, next match um, was, uh, I love the entrance here for Rapongi 3K. I think they must have the best 
entrance music um, by Rocky Romero in the entire world. I love it. Uh, they defeated Bullet Club uh, for the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Team Championship match. And not a whole lot to say here. I think it was a good match, um, but nothing here that made me think that um, – you know, uh, this is a pivotal match that you have to watch if you're trying to get through both nights pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, it's a good match because it shows off the depth that New Japan has, both with um, Sho and Yo and obviously um, El Fantasmo and Taji Ishimori. Where these guys are all like just awesome wrestlers, and they're just like another other guys in the card. But sure. this was a good junior heavyweight division. Tag division is always usually pretty good. Fast pace, a lot of pin, a lot of pin attempts. Um, a lot of breakup of pins, that kind of stuff, high spots, all stuff that you would want to see. It was a good sprint is what they would call it. Um, it's about 12 minutes in length, just real good, solid wrestling. Um, is it something that you absolutely have to see? Cause it'll blow you away. No, but if you like good wrestling and it's going to be, it's a really good part of the show. If you just like solid performing. Speaking of good part of the show, Sonata versus Zack Sabre Jr. for the Rev Pro British mm-hmm. Heavyweight Championship. Dude, what a match this was. Of course, if you don't know, Zack Sabre Jr., notorious for his strong style, or as he calls it, his Sabre style wrestling. And this was just a very great um, grappling style. We're going to be on the mat. We're going to roll through everything. Um, you know, it's guys guys flipping into and out of moves, this catch style wrestling. And, and you know... What I liked about it is they talked about Zack Sabre's training style, what made mm-hmm. him unique. Um, they say that every time Sonata has won at Wrestle Kingdom, he's won gold. And so there were all these dynamic stories coming into this. And this match, I think this match was only, uh, yeah, it was only about 12 minutes. But um, it was just a really great 12 minutes of wrestling that you didn't see anywhere else over these two nights. Yeah, Zach is so useful because his style is so different that you can have a match like the junior tag team championship match, which is, you know, fast paced tag team, junior heavyweight tag match. It's going to be guys going fast. Zach comes in and it's slow, but I I mean, some people say he's boring, which I can understand if you think he's boring, but I think on a show like this, his style is so different with, you know, the tricky roll-ups and the various submissions. He always wins his matches either by a new roll-up form or a different submission. You never know right when a match is going to end. Anytime he locks in a submission could be the end of the match. Anytime he goes for a roll-up, it could be the end of the match. Psychologically, he's perfect. I think they can do anything with him. I think they wanted to push him. Right now, he's kind of in the mid-card. They wanted to push him in the main event. I feel like he could do that. Um, He's also, like, low-key, a great heel. And I really like his banter, like, uh, t- we talked about the match the previous night, the eight man tag, and they were kind of Suzuki or uh, um, Suzuki Goon with Zach. We're kind of going at it with Sonata, and like Zach's kind of got the title. And he's like, "You'll never get this. You'll never get this." And he turns around. And he's like, "All right, how about a beer?" And he's got like a British accent. He just feels like just like he's just like so snobbish. It's perfect. He does a really good job with his just character. And another great thing about the commentary is that Zach is obviously very skinny. And most people would say, like, this guy's too skinny to be a wrestler. But the commentary talks about how that helps his wrestling style when he comes in with all these holds. Sonata can't get him in this lock because his arms are too loose because he's too skinny. He can slide out of stuff. He can apply stuff. He's very, like, lean. And it really, like, is perfect commentary because you're taking what should be a weakness and marketing it as a strength. Right. And that's, the that's like, something It seems simple, but it's rarely done. And I just think, overall, this is great. This is, like you said, it's a really good match, and it's different than the other stuff on the show, which helps. 
Well, they, they make it believable. To your point, they make it seem like it's a thing that can actually happen. CM Punk said this a few weeks ago when he was on WWE backstage. Fans want believability in their pro wrestling. And I think the way the announced team builds this up, it is. Also, uh, we talk about this style. And again, I don't know if somebody can consider this boring. If every match was this style of ground-based uh, yeah. grappling, maybe. But the speed at which they were going through some of this and the back and forth and the constant near falls, I thought was super interesting. I mean, there were some like holds in there, but that's just part of the game because you got to have that pace every once in a while to give the fans a chance to breathe but what made it really cool was the win i wasn't gonna say it came out of nowhere but the win kind of came out of uh very suddenly but they made that believable because there was so much jockeying for position so many transitions into and out of pen attempts that whenever zach saber jr pulled off the victory at the end it seemed like he could very easily have caught Tanada by surprise that they were actually real fighting. And I just love that. I loved everything about that finish and you should check it out. Yeah. And on top of that, Michael, it trains the fans to like, if next time they wrestle, next time Zach goes for a roll up, the fans will think that's a near fall, believable near fall, as opposed to a guy just doing a roll up. It's all about training the fans. And we'll get into that. There's like, there was a very key moment in the main event between Okada and Naito where that came into play, but if you train the fans to expect different finishes, yes, more stuff works. It's one of the reasons that I really like. Like AEW is trying to do that. They don't have the reputation quite there. But one of the reasons I like when they do 20 minute draws, I like when they do um, count outs. I like when you do kind of different stuff like that, because you have to train the fans to expect these things. So when you tease them, they actually work. And yep. I think that's really important. Well, and, and and not only are you training the fans here to kind of understand how all this works, you're, you're helping them understand that there's a variety of things they can watch and experience in pro wrestling that may not be, um, what they're used to, but it can still be very effective. And so WWE leans into the same style too often. And I think when you have pay-per-views, it gets really dull because we just know what's going to play out here. And um, I, again, check this match out. If it's one of the ones you're watching this week, if only because it is something so different. Now we had, uh, we have a few more matches here on night two that are worth talking about here. John Moxley um, coming in, IWGP United States Championship, regaining in a night one, defending in a night two against Juice Robinson. Um, I was not crazy about this match i did not feel like at any point that moxley was in real danger of losing the championship we saw a little rougher edge to juice robinson um, in certain parts of this match but i thought it was just a fine match the bigger thing here for me moxley retaining um and uh, going on and going back to AEW this week but then moving on um as your iwgp us title holder for the near future yeah i mean that's what it does say that he's going to be keep working for new japan there was some talk that maybe he would stop working um after this would be kind of his last dates, but obviously um, it's going to be interesting because New Japan is going to be running about 25 shows in the U.S. in 2020. It's a big year for them in the U.S. Famously, because um, Moxley did not wrestle on the G1 show in the U.S., the idea was that Moxley could wrestle for New Japan in Japan, but in the U.S. he was exclusive to AEW, and he's the U.S. champion. Is he not going to be able to appear right. on those shows? But right. We, I mean, we'll, we could talk about this during the Jericho Tanahashi match. There's obviously a lot of balls in the air between the AEW and New Japan relationship. If things have changed, if things haven't changed, if things are better, if things are worse, we don't know for sure. But it's interesting that it retained the title. The more important aspect of this match is forget about the match. Match is whatever. After the match, Minoru Suzuki comes out and challenges Moxley for the title, which is <laughs> a match that I never thought I, up until a few, recently I didn't think I wanted, but now I absolutely need. It's interesting how they use Suzuki because – during the first night when they had the Suzuki gun eight man tag, Suzuki was there, but he didn't really do anything. They came out to Zack Sabre's juniors music instead of Suzuki's, which is 
odd and frankly disappointing because Suzuki's theme song is awesome. But it, it was presented as being like Zack is the star. Suzuki is just this other guy. And, you know, he's over 50 years old. So you would assume that maybe, you know, maybe it's time that Zack kind of takes the lane, reins as the main star and Suzuki's kind of fades into the background. No, of course, tonight Suzuki comes out with his music. He challenges John Moxley. Um, he says he Moxley um, after he re- after Moxley beat the t- beat uh, Lance Archer for the title, he said he was going big game hunting, which was alluding to maybe the IWGP Heavyweight Championship. Turns out he's probably talking about Suzuki because Suzuki comes out, uh, challenges Moxley for the title, says if he wins the title, he's going to be the king of America. Um, I don't want to be too political on this, but um, I'm here for the the Minoru Suzuki monarchy, uh, Suzuki 2020. <laughs> uh, uh, but I don't think that's how it works. I don't think if you win the U.S. title, you're the king of America. I'd have to. Double I don't think that's that. how it works, though. But yeah. it's more of that. But I think that is interesting because he was bragging so much after the match and kind of disrespecting New Japan. And I thought it was so awesome that Suzuki was the guy to answer that call, and it felt very personal and very real, and gave them a reason to fight beyond just having yeah. the championship. And as soon as he came out, I was like. I'm here for this. Wherever, wherever I'm, I'm take yeah. like what's the, the 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 meme? Shut up and take my money. Like, yes, that's, yes, that's what it is. Like oh, Suzuki versus Moxley. Uh, I'm here for that. So that's really what this. I mean, the Juice versus Moxley match isn't super important, but the yeah. post match is what I think people will be talking about. Absolutely. We had uh, Hiroki Goto uh, defeating Kenta. Of course, if you guys know Kenta, um, former NXT star, they mentioned that this is the first time that he had wrestled um, in Wrestle Kingdom since. What was that? Uh, For his first Tokyo Dome singles appearance, I should say, since 2005. Of course, he spent a few years in NXT. uh, But, uh, you know, this was a good match. It was for the um, Never Openweight Championship. Kenta, uh, coming in the champion, did lose to Hiroki Goto. Um, Not not much here for me to really dig into. What were your thoughts on this match, Jesse? I really liked the match. It was kind of a basic strong, very most strong style of all the matches we saw. It was just, the ending was just Goto just clotheslined him and beat him down and ended up winning the title. The storyline here, um, I'll have to summarize it briefly, is that um, Katsori Shibata, who is a former New Japan wrestler who suffered a a devastating brain injury and can no longer wrestle, um, was Goto is very good friends with Goto and also good friends with Kenta. And when Kenta left WWE, Shibata kind of got him into New Japan because Kenta didn't wrestle for New Japan previously. He wrestled for Pro Wrestling Noah. So he kind of, Shibata's like, here, open the door for Kenta to get into New Japan. And that's real life. That's a real story. And then they did a storyline last year where when Kenta joined the Bullet Club, he disrespected Shibata. He actually like beat down Shibata, which was stunning at the time because Shibata, we were told basically Shibata can't take any bumps because he had a, a significant brain injury. And then so this was Goto out for revenge on his friend kind of you know, being a surrogate for Shibata and gaining that kind of vengeance, which is why you kind of had this heated match. Kenta, since he's come back to New Japan, has kind of been hit or miss. When he's in a singles match, he's really good. When he's not in a singles match, he just completely absent, doesn't right. really do much for me. Yeah, it's like he's not interested. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I saw him, uh, I got a chance to see him live, and it was uh, just like one of the house shows they ran in the U.S. Uh, the summer. And I was like, oh, I was excited to see him because I hadn't, you know, see. Oh, Kenta, he's kind of still new at the time, and he like, did nothing in the match. Well, and you talk about, anything. like, he was in NXT, and then he had injury, and then he wasn't there anymore. Mm-hmm. And and part of that, people said maybe he wasn't as interested in his storylines. He When he's not involved or invested, it yeah. just seems like he checks he, out a little bit. Yeah, he did. He checked out. But tonight, he brought it because he yes. had a big singles match. Yes. And this was a – I feel like if you – aren't familiar with strong style watch this match because that's really what it was it was hard hitting there's no not no nonsense just guys you know beating the crap out of each other goto just ended up kind of um 
beating him down at the end and winning the match. It's a good match to watch. It's not that long, um, but it was it was good for what it was. Yeah, yeah. No, nothing nothing wrong here. The strong style was shown throughout it. And again, the difference here between this and a Zack Saber Junior match, which is what I love, which is guys in these kinds of matches win by beating the hell out of their opponent until they just can't fight anymore. A Zack Saber Junior match, he wins by timing and getting the right roll mm-hmm. up. And I love that contrast here. Of yeah. course. Um, the, the, the big match um, we had, uh, I was not a big fan of having this match on this card. Um, the loser t- the loser match from night one, Jay White and Kota Ibushi. I, I thought maybe they should have saved this for, uh, we have New Year's Dash coming up tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Like we should have saved that and it could have been a number one contendership for the IC title again or something like that. Well, I believe this match is was a number one, is like a de facto number one contenders match for the IWGP championship. Is it? Because I, I never quite picked up on it. Did they, did they say that on the announcement? Uh, that's my impression. They Let's said see. that they were going to fight their way back into contention, but it never felt like it was quite that open. Right. Either way. Maybe, maybe that just implied that like, yeah. I, that's been like, if you win this match, you'll be put out the front of the line for the title. But anyway, we, yeah, I, I understand your point that this maybe could have been saved for another match, but again, it is Wrestle Kingdom. It's their version of WrestleMania. They got two sure. nights for it. You, you kind of go all out. You know, well, and we're doing a third night basically. New Year's Dash always comes immediately after us, yeah. so they haven't even announced that card yet. They're going to announce it when the bell starts tomorrow night. Well, historically, New Year's Dash, yeah, is usually like kind of like a it's kind of like the raw after WrestleMania, yes, yes, very similar to that. Where, but the main focus of New Year's Dash is kind of like Wrestle Kingdom is over, here are the new feuds, right? Right, and that's where they'll start. So, yeah, they, uh, they usually don't go crazy with like a big main event for that show. I know this year it's in a bigger venue just because historically. New Year's Dash has been like impossible to get tickets for because it takes place at Corcon Hall, which only has about 1,800 seats. And it comes the day after you just sold 40,000 seats and all these people right. are around uh, for Tokyo Dome's. But they moved into a bigger building, so it's going to be like one of their actually biggest shows of the year from an attendance standpoint. But it's probably just going to be a little tag match. But anyway, um, yeah. yeah, this was the de facto number one contenders, loser, consolation match, third place match, whatever you want to call it. And we've talked a lot about Ibushi before, so I don't think we need to retread all that. The one thing I want to bring up about this match that I think is, is fascinating is this match was the first one that had a lot of like kind of chaos involved. And I mean that not as the group, but as in just general match um anarchy right there was a, the the ref got knocked out twice um we had an unprotected chair shot um whenever uh they threw one abushi got hit directly in the head when a chair got thrown at him um so there was kind of all this anarchy happening in the ring and i think it worked because they didn't really do this throughout any other match there were some a couple of small things here and there but this match had more run-ins and things like that and it was more effective because it hadn't been overused anywhere else throughout the two nights of new japan also you know what i love about new japan pro wrestling too the referees are characters not in the way that we used to have earl hebner and um patrick what was his name patrick neil uh nick patrick mm-hmm. as like referee characters who fought at pay-per-views but you know red shoes um you know all the different referees this one referee right for example he stands more for keeping the match under control and i think that also adds an element of credibility to what happens at these shows yeah i was I wasn't a big fan of the interferences match. It was actually kind of disappointing to me. I thought the match was fine, and I was fine with White going over. It tells the story. Abushi failed twice at Wrestle yeah. Kingdom, so that sets that story up. And White gets a big win over Abushi. So Bullet Club has something. This is one of the only matches they won. I think it might have been it's the only match they won. I believe the only match they won. Yes. Yeah, um, which is something. And but I just thought the. Constant interference was a little unnecessary. It kind of felt cheap that there's interference in this very important match. Um, but I just didn't see this match as being important, I guess. And again, I, I thought this was just, it felt a little bit more like filler. If there is something on the line, 
I get it. But because it didn't feel important to me, I was like, yeah, sure. Let's just throw in the kitchen sink. That'd be fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, New Japan, one thing about New Japan is that they, they don't do singles matches that much. They yeah. all, it's mostly tag matches. So anytime there's a singles match, it kind of has a certain level of importance, especially if it's a singles match between two big stars at Wrestle Kingdom. I, I do get what you're saying that maybe this wasn't as important of a match, but I just felt like you could have done the match without the interference. You could have told the same story. Um, you could white would look better for it. I know part of the idea is he got a bunch of heel heat by cheating, but yeah. to me, it just kind of like felt unnecessary, but that's just my opinion. I, I would love to see white come stateside at some point. I think he would be an amazing leader of a heel faction in maybe something like AEW, right? Could you imagine if in a couple of years, Jericho is stepping away and we have the inner circle and they need a new guy to step up and be their leader. And it's somebody like a Jay white. I mean, that's just me. Fantasy I mean, looking. white's white's really interesting because he, I think he was pushed a little too fast in New yes. Japan. He yes. wasn't quite ready for this role. But if you watch him, he's a really good wrestler. He's 27 years old. He's got tons of potential. Yeah. It's hard for me to say that he's not deserving of his push right now because he does execute when he needs to. I just don't feel like from like a personality standpoint, he's as over as some of the other people that he's ahead, such as right. Will Ospreay. But I do think that there's, you know, the sky's limit for him. I saw someone toss out the idea that what if JY was the leader of the Dark Order, um, <laughs> which would be pretty interesting. I don't know how effective that would be, but... It's just an idea, but you're right. It's kind of a guy who could come into the U.S. one day. I don't think um, we need to break down Jay White with maybe saddling him with that new order stuff yeah. at this point. So we had, uh, of course, this was living in the shadow of our big co-main event, the first match being uh, Chris Jericho versus Hiroshi Tanahashi. Um, Jericho was not putting his AEW World Championship on the line, but he promised that if he, uh, if he lost to Tanahashi, Tanahashi could request an AEW World Championship match. Um, I like this match. They got a good 20 to 30 minutes. Jericho, uh, you know, he, he's not in bodybuilder shape here. He doesn't look as good um, as the the six packs of Ibushi or even the kind of prototypical bodybuilder style we see in WWE. Mm -hmm. But New Japan focuses more on that fight style and that fight body. And Jericho does fit in from that perspective here. He got a little winded in spots of this match. Um, but overall, I thought this was the exact kind of match it needed to be. Um, and Jericho goes over with the win using, and I got to call this out here, not only did he use his typical walls of Jericho Boston Crab to get the victory, he leaned in and went full on lion tamer with it. And the announcement he put over here, that's got to be humiliating for Tanahashi because all the young lions learn um about this exact move and their role since it's called the lion tamer so i, I just yeah. love that little bit too historically lion like if you watch a young lions match but just between the young islands it almost always ends in a boston crap that's yes. all it, that's all it moves so the idea was yeah that was a great job by kevin kelly pointing out because i wasn't even thinking about that i'm like oh yeah that is the young boy move i mean the the shadow over this match is that if tanahashi won he would get an AEW title match, which would signify probably more New Japan involvement with AEW and vice versa. Um, instead, with Jericho winning, it makes it seem like that this was just kind of used as a prop for to help people get more interested in the match. And it worked because I was much more interested in this match because I had that kind of like, you know, if Tanahashi wins, then all of a sudden, Jer you know, that means something else for, for AEW and New Japan. But alas, Jericho still won. He did come out with the title. He kind of teased like he didn't have the title belt because yeah. people were talking like, oh, do you think Jericho will wear the title to the ring? And he, like he comes out wearing the jacket and the T-shirt. And I'm like, oh, he's not wearing the title. That's interesting because they reference the title a bunch and they takes off his shirt and of course he has the title on um jericho and tanahashi are and i feel 100 confident in saying this are the two smartest people in professional wrestling mm. they are like this isn't like a match athletically that you're going to see with these other you know 
like obviously the main event or, you know, Osprey and Hiromu and that kind of stuff. Right. Because these guys are older. They've wrestled a million matches. They've had, they've taken a ton of bumps. Both guys are pretty beat up, but they could have a good match if they were both in wheelchairs because they understand how to work the crowd. Yeah. Jericho, Jericho, you can tell really likes working in Japan. There's a certain novel aspect he gets from interacting with the crowd there where he kind of does a lot of just what would maybe be like obnoxious, like, not very interesting heel stuff in the U S but just like flipping off the crowd and yelling at them and doing all this kind of like basic heel stuff, but it really gets a reaction. Um, and well, this his was showboating over there. I think this is what's interesting. Yeah, showboating. I, I, I mean, I think that like Jericho needs to have a slower pace of match because he's not in the shape he was. 20 yeah. Years he's not going to have a good, you know, if he was going to be doing flips and stuff like that, that's not what he's going right. to do well. But that and, showboating is something you don't see a lot from guys in Japan to the extent that Jericho gets to the top rope mm-hmm. and does the guitar riff. And he, he's so good at it that, yeah. of course, I want him to do it in that crowd. And he gets the reaction. And it's it's just a great kind of this full was, circle experience. This was the best match of the weekend based on like you have a someone who's obviously the heel and who's obviously the baby face with yeah. Naito and Okada. You had Naito was ended up being the baby face and Okada the heel, but that's a different dynamic. This is very much Jericho was the classic evil heel and Tanahashi is the classic lovable baby face. And they're yeah. both so smart at working. Tanahashi's the perfect working baby face. Jericho's the perfect working heel. And it really works. If you were like a fan of just traditional wrestling, this is going to be your favorite match probably on the show, just because this, the, the basics were so that were there and they did an excellent job and they went a pretty good distance. I mean, Tanahashi was actually in really good shape. Um, he had been, you know, he's been banged up for years and he actually didn't even have, they had this new Japan bodybuilding contest that Tanahashi kind of like, um, uh, promote, like kind of put together with the guys just like, Hey, everyone try to get in as really good shape as possible. So you can right. tell that he was in good shape. I did. I saw Jericho. I'm like, man, Jericho, like, doesn't look like he's in great shape, which is, you know, when I'm 49, I won't look in that good shape either. That's right. That's right. Um, but uh, you know, he still, he still can do everything he needs to do to be effective. So yes. he's not necessarily he's not out there botching stuff. He's not out there like getting so winded that the match has to be short to hide his right. weaknesses. He can still get it done enough in the ring to justify always being in the main event because everything else is there from the promos and the charisma and the name value and all that kind of stuff like well that. he still hits the big spots when he needs to he had a great drop kick um mm-hmm. to the outside at one point um and so i just think there's he still does enough right that it clicks so the we talk about here what does this mean right if, if tanahashi had won that he would be in line possibly to get any title shot and that might more importantly signify that AEW and New Japan had come to some sort of working deal, especially with Moxley walking out with the IWGP United States Championship. Well, um, it does not look like that is officially the case. In the post-match press conference, Chris Jericho did address this. Somebody asked him about it. He said that he would love to see, he did not say it's happened, but he said he would love to see a stronger working relationship between these two companies. I mean, almost made it seem like uh, the bad blood that has been rumored for a while maybe is not quite as bad or something they could not possibly work through. So that's good to hear. And he also said he expects to be back at next year's Wrestle Kingdom as well. So um, some hope there for the fans. I've said it before. I think both of these companies almost, I don't need each other, but I think especially new Japan needs AEW to gain a bigger foothold in the American audience. They tried it with ring of honor. That partnership fizzled because of a lot of factors. I think AEW would be a better partner for new Japan. And I think AEW would also get a grub from being next to all of these IWGP, the heavyweight championship, the U S title, which have this historic backstory to them. Yeah. I mean, it's, 
makes logical sense for them to benefit. There's some bad blood, and I get it on both sides. Um, if you watch the, uh, I don't know if you saw it, but it was the wrestlers ordering room service yeah. with um, the Young Bucks and then Kenny Omega, and they don't really talk about anything specific, but they talk about their exits both from Ring of Honor and New Japan, and there's clearly a lot of tension there. Uh, and so it's more difficult than than I think most people think, but at the same time, eventually they should be able to work out the differences. And like I said, when I, I tweeted this out, as soon as the match was over, I'm like, all right, everyone, you know, forget about your fantasy booking ideas. It's going to be a little while because as soon as people, you know, get their imaginations going like, Ooh, you know, what if they work together? What if, you know, Okada comes over and he challenges someone for the title and then you do Okada and Omega in the U S or, yeah. you know, Sammy Guevara goes over and is part of the best of the super juniors tournament or, you know, so-and-so is in the G1 and, you know, this kind of stuff like that and all this kind of stuff, which maybe will happen one day. And I hope it does because as wrestling fans, I think we'd be the big winners from Absolutely. their working relationship. Absolutely. So we have our main event here, um, of course, set up for the previous night. It is uh, Tetsuya Naito, um, the new IWGP Intercontinental Championship, um, defending it slash fighting for Kazuchika Okada's IWGP Heavyweight Championship. And this match was – these guys wrestled – Killer matches the night before. This match was a killer match. I see lots of people saying it's one of going to be one of their matches of the years. Naito winning um, by just a great offensive flurry down the stretch. Um, and I just think this was exactly what it needed to be. It went about 35 minutes. Uh, we got to see Okada continuously. He's telling the story here of him trying to hit that Rainmaker over and over and over again, and he can't quite do it. He finally hits it. Naito still kicks out. Naito, bottom of the ninth, finding a way to win against all odds. And what I liked about it, too, was... Okada is, we talked about this earlier, he is the consummate New Japan Pro Wrestling golden boy, right? He is the guy that that company upholds like none other. And so to get the fans to turn against him is challenging. But what they did was Okada worked the knee throughout this match, and it gained sympathy for Naito. You talked earlier, Naito maybe didn't have quite the same fan base he had since losing a couple of years ago. And they told that story in the match as well, Mm -hmm. but... Him getting worked over by Okada, getting that nasty spot where he's dropped onto a table with his knee, um, it really started getting the fans behind him so that down the stretch when Naito made his big kind of fight back into this to get the win, the fans were solidly there with him. And it was just a great finish to a great two nights of wrestling. I don't know that I would say this match was as good as what I think some of the the Omega Okada matches were. Like Those were some fantastic bouts, but this was a, a pretty damn good match. I thought this was great. I thought that were they as good as the Omega matches? I mean, I would probably say no, but that's an unfair standard. Sure. Sure. Um, but I thought they did a lot of good stuff in here. I liked, you had the great story of, you know, Naito had been driven for two years to come back and avenge his loss. They told the story about how he, you know, he did this interview with uh, new Japan's website where he talked about how he thought about retiring because he's like, I don't know if I can wrestle anymore. You know, I'm banged up this kind of stuff. Classic story guy loses, has all this self doubt, thinks about quitting, but ends up rallying back, accomplishes his dreams. Um, Pulled, you know, over these two nights, I really liked the, um, the table spot with the knee. Because yeah. I think there's a couple things that go into that. The first is that it's just different. You, ha- you see table spots a lot in every single wrestling promotion. And while everyone likes table spots, they always get over. A lot of them are kind of the same. It's either someone dives on top of someone on a table or someone gets put through the table. This was a little different. He gave him what is essentially like a, an atomic drop or like a shin breaker on the table. So he like didn't like put him right through the table, but he like jammed his knee on the table. And it still looked good, but it was just different than how you would do a normal table spot. And then the second thing is they did this count out spot that was so good 
because if you were to think about it as a wrestling fan, you're like, well, there's no way they're going to do a count-out finish. There's no way that Naito gets counted out in the main event of Wrestle Kingdom 14 Night 2 with both titles on the line, and this is how it ends for Naito. He gets counted out because he got dropped on a table. Like, But when they're doing the count-out, and you know, the referee says 17 and Naito's trying to get back in and he falls down. I'm like, oh my God, he's going to get counted out. And of course he rallies back and just getting me, convincing me that it could legitimately be a finish, even though in the back of my head, I'm like, there's no way this is actually the finish. Sure. That's yeah. that's really good storytelling. And it comes from having done countouts before in, in matches that you teach the crowd to actually expect that as opposed to just being something you have to do if wrestlers go outside the ring. Like and WWE really, tends to do most of the time. They rarely have countout wins or losses, right? Yeah, I mean, a lot of promotions are like that. It's not just WWE, but you're right. Like counting out is something that you, you have to do things from time to time. Like there was a, I think it was Bad Luck Fale and Zack Sabre Jr. They did a great countout in the last year's G1. And the whole point, the reason it was so good was because they didn't do. They don't. You don't do countouts a lot, but if you do it every once in a while, it teaches the fans to to understand that. Obviously, they didn't do the countout here. I just thought it was a really interesting spot. Yeah, and uh, one of our commenters says if Naito would have gotten counted out, that place would have turned into one night stand. Yeah, like there's no way they would actually do the countout spot, right. but I just right. the fact that they were able to convince me, a cynical wrestling fan, that they could actually do it is was really impressive. And like you said, there was a great flurry of finishes at the end. Uh, wanted- just some big, I mean, we talked about the countout spot, but that poison Rana, that thing was sick. Um, it was an incredible move. And of course, uh, oh, I, I just love this Naito um, hitting the Stardust Press. Yeah. looked amazing. Well, he had fit the story of that move is first of all, the story of Naito is that was his original finisher or his finisher yeah. when he first kind of got a Naito was kind of pushed five or six years ago as like kind of a white meat baby face. Yeah. The crowd never quite took to him. He went to Mexico. He joined Los Ingobernables, kind of developed this anti-hero persona. He comes back much more popular, really cracked through at the main event level that the, you know, especially after Nakamura left as kind of like the anti-hero guy in New Japan. Um, but he had never really gotten this. He had won the title before in kind of a brief 60-day reign that is very forgettable. It's almost worse that he, it's almost like not even worth talking about. But this was his chance to do it. And he, the fact that he, in 2018... He went for the Stardust Press and he missed it, and he lost the match. And that's how he lost the match, yes. Because they announced brought that up. So the fact that he hit it, um, I thought that could be the finish because it's like, oh, he had to go back to what made him great, you know, five or six years ago before he was, you know, tranquilo, right? To to to, to end up getting that big win, and of course it was another good near fall. But it was just a lot of different kind of psychological elements. People, you know. People who don't watch New Japan might say that New Japan lacks storytelling or lacks psychology. And I mm. just, I find it completely the opposite. And you look at a match like this, it's all storytelling. Okada is, I said in my preview column I wrote before this events, these events that I thought Abushi Naito should be the main event night too, because Abushi should get a chance to win the title, even if he loses it. You can still do the vengeance storyline, but he doesn't look like a total loser losing the two matches back to back. But while I was watching the match, I'm like, it makes sense. Okada, like you said, Okada is the standard bearer for New Japan. He's the guy that um, you, if you want to really be the guy in New Japan, you have to beat him. You can't beat someone right. else for the title. It has to be Okada. And it really worked like that. He's He is Ric Flair. I mean, when it comes to being the guy that just night in and night out, he's the guy that has the title matches. He's the guy. He's going to be the champion again at some point. I'm sure Naito will get a decent run with the title this time. But it's still the company still revolves around Okada, and you understand why because 
the performances he puts on, his knowledge, uh, the way he puts together his finishes, the last three or four minutes of Okada matches are the best parts of wrestling. Absolutely. And we saw that both in the Ibushi match and the Naito match, which were two different kind of matches, but just those flurries, the Rainmaker. And the other thing about him, now I'm just gushing about Okada, but <laughs> uh, like he just does simple stuff. He does a clothesline and he does a drop kick and he does the tombstone pile driver, but he just gets so much out of those moves. They're not, it's not like he's doing crazy spots or athletic moves or moves that are going to kill him or kill his opponent. If he does them uh, too much, they're really basic stuff, but just his knowledge of timing and execution and getting stuff over, he just does simple stuff and it works. And that's how you should, that's how you understand like true, true genius in wrestling is when you can do that kind of stuff and it gets over. Well, I think that's the story of New Japan in general is they don't have to do – I mean they do some really tough, brutal stuff. Yeah. But they make it feel real because of things like timing, because of the way that guys sell moves afterwards. The way they go for pinfalls, I don't always have to scoop the head and, and raise the leg, right? I can just fall on top of you because that's where you naturally fell, and I think that adds to the element of realism. So I dig all of that. Yeah, this is – I mean, again, and that's that's Russell Kingdom 14 in a, in a nutshell. This is yeah. a great, great later – yeah. Real quick, uh, just to kind of summarize, what did you think about the two-night format? I I dug it. If we'd have to do this podcast in the middle of the night, um, I think it would have been better, right? But I wish I, – I got to think, you know, maybe WrestleMania should be two nights. But they also – they already do NXT on that Saturday night, so it would be hard to split. But I did overall think it was a really great way to tell the story in a complete mm-hmm. fashion. Yeah, I like to have the two nights back-to-back. I thought that – like the junior heavyweight title match maybe doesn't get enough time as much time as it did. Sure. It was only one show. I do. I'm kind of a pro WrestleMania two night person. You would have to tweak the schedule a little bit, but WWE's whole idea is they want to dominate WrestleMania weekend. They don't like that. These other promotions show up and steal fans from them. So if you have another night of WrestleMania, you're going to, kind of muscle out those other fans because then you have NXT. You can still do NXT. Right. Maybe sacrifice the Hall of Fame or turn the Hall, do the Hall of Fame at a different time of year or something like that. But I think it's too obvious. You get a second gate, which is huge. And yeah. I think the number one complaint from WrestleMania these last few years has been the show's too long. So you, you cut it down. You make the show more manageable to watch. Uh, the fans don't get exhausted. Uh, I, I mean, it depends. They have – WWE has a ridiculous amount of roster depth, so they could have – they could put together 20 matches, two 10 match cards or two eight match cards or whatever you wanted to do. And it could be good. I think it's interesting that they were able to basically double because there's um talk about whether they're going to new Japan's going to do this next year, because this year it worked out because it kind of fell naturally on a weekend because you had the Friday night and Saturday night shows next year. It's going to be a little more tricky because the second show is going to be a Sunday night show or it's going to be a right. Monday show, or I forget how the calendar works. It's hard. Yeah, to- these have been in the Fridays in the past, so it's not yeah. always easy. Uh, yeah, you know, I think that WWE could do it now. It's different this year anyway because they're doing Hall of Fame on Thursday, SmackDowns on Friday. So they yeah, have that's shows. Right. They have SmackDown on Friday. So you have SmackDown on Friday and Raw on Monday. So that whole weekend is kind of bookended by TV shows. But what I think you would do if you're WWE is, and I love NXT, and I think Takeover is always so special. But I think you swap that to be Night One of WrestleMania, and maybe it's headlined by your NXT Championship, and you save the WWE or it's headlined by the SmackDown WWE Championship and the Raw WWE Championship on night two. But I would think that you could still do it. And I would honestly rather see a, another night of WrestleMania and see that card spread out and lose TakeOver and get some of that TakeOver talent and those matches on a WrestleMania card. Hypothetically, what I would do, and I don't know if you can do this, obviously, you do TakeOver Thursday night. You do Hall of Fame is on SmackDown. Or you don't do Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame I'm sorry, Hall of Fame's stupid. 
I don't, I mean, I like, it's, it's sometimes entertaining to see the guys talk. It's usually on too yeah. long. Yeah. They're out of relevant people to, to put in. So they kind of just induct the same people over and over again in different versions. Right. I'm very anti WWE Hall of Fame. So if you wanted to do, or you could do that a different time of year, you don't have to do it during WrestleMania year either. That's, that's, right. that's like their own rule. I'm just thinking you don't, if the, do you it the weekend before, like the all-star game is the weekend after Super Bowl, right? Or do it the weekend after Pro Bowl, like, yeah. a, or the Pro Bowl, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, do it, do it different places, right? Like, you don't yeah, know. I mean, you can do it whenever and it just seems like a no brainer. Like you can get, you're literally going to make, I mean, maybe ticket prices go down a little bit, but you're going to be making double the gate right. in theory. Right. right? Um, and you control WrestleMania week. You're not going to have people going to the Saturday night, other shows because, you know, as good as takeover is on those Saturday nights, it's not going to yeah. be like a, um, they can only fit 14,000 people or whatever in the arena right. as opposed right. to, so those other people are going to find other shows. I just think it makes kind of, um, it makes kind of sense to do it on two nights. I don't know if they'll do it. It's never been two nights before. Yeah. But I It'd think be great. this was an interesting experiment having it over two nights. I thought yeah. it was interesting because they really uh, used it to tell stories. Um, yep. And that was that continues throughout both nights. Yeah. Like you, you kind of, if you wanted the full experience, you needed to watch both nights. You couldn't just watch, you know, one night or whatever there was. And there wasn't one night that was better than the other. I thought night one had better top tier matches, but there was the first part of the card that you didn't really need to watch. The second night had a little bit more title matches. It was a little more of a um, consistent show from top to bottom, but I thought it was, I thought it worked out. They pulled it off very nicely and it'd be interesting to see if WWE attempts something similar. Well, if you didn't watch uh, Wrestle Kingdom 14, it is in the books. Um, this was New Japan's, again, New Japan Pro Wrestling's biggest event of the year. If you uh, didn't watch it, we just spoiled every match for you, right? But you can check it out. The replay is on Fight, uh, the fight.tv. Um, there's a Fight app on uh, Roku. Lots of all on Android phones, all that jazz. Great broadcast from them. Thank you guys again for um, sending us those codes that we got to send out to our fans. So Fight is a place to check it out. If you have a subscription to New Japan Pro Wrestling World, you can watch it on there as well. And I would highly encourage... You go check out these cards because they're just something different. If you're not, if you've not watched Japanese wrestling, this is a great place to get started. So um, that being said, uh, ten hours of wrestling in the book, uh, an hour and a half podcast in the book. Jesse, um, where can people find you? I know you are you do a lot for Wrestling Inc. You write a lot of articles. You do that view from the Turnbuckle series. Um, where can people catch up with your work for Wrestling Inc.? Yep, you can check out Views from the Turnbuckle pretty much every Friday. Uh, uploads Friday mornings on Wrestling Inc. You can also follow me on Twitter. That's at Jesse Collins, just like my number, or just like my name. Jeez, that was bad. I'm very <laughs> tired. I'm very tired. Just like my name, at Jesse Collins on Twitter. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for joining. If you guys did like our podcast tonight, please give us a rating on iTunes um, for the audio version. Give us a rating on, give us that thumbs up on YouTube for the video version. We don't always do New Japan stuff, but if we find out you guys like it, we are more likely to do more of it. So call it out in the comments. Tell us what you think about this. Um, We appreciate those of you who did join us for this early morning show. My name, I am Michael Wiseman. I am on Twitter at The Real Wiseman. Wrestling Inc. will be back tomorrow night, um, immediately following Raw for their post game show there. That will be Glenn and maybe Raj is back from vacation. I don't know. Matt Morgan will be there. Maybe Justin Labar shows up. Who knows? Tune in to find out. <clears throat> Excuse me. Anyway, thank you all for joining us. We will catch you right here next time at Wrestling Inc. In broadcast. <laughs> <laughs>